the seat would fly back and crush both the kneecaps of the sweet little old lady sitting behind me, so I left it alone. We bounced through a snowy half-light, out through the sprawling suburbs of Oslo and into the countryside. The scattered villages and farmhouses looked trim and prosperous in the endless dusk. Every house had Christmas lights burning cheerily in the windows. I quickly settled into that not unpleasant state of mindlessness that tends to overcome me on long journeys, my head lolling on my shoulders in the manner of someone who has lost all control of his neck muscles and doesn't really mind. My trip had begun. I was about to see Europe again. The first time I came to Europe was in 1972, skinny, shy, alone. In those days, the only cheap flights were from New York to Luxembourg, with a refueling stop en route at Keflavik Airport at Reykjavik. The airplanes were engagingly past their prime. Oxygen masks would sometimes drop unbidden from their overhead storage compartments and dangle there until a stewardess with a hammer and a mouthful of nails came along to put things right, and the door of the lavatory tended to swing open if you didn't hold it shut with a foot which brought a certain dimension of challenge to anything else you planned to do in there. And they were achingly slow. It took a week and a half to reach Keflavik, a small gray airport in the middle of a flat gray nowhere, and another week and a half to bounce on through the skies to Luxembourg. Everyone on the plane was a hippie, except the crew and two herring factory executives in first class. It was rather like being on a Greyhound bus on the way to a folk singer's convention. People were forever pulling out guitars and mandolins and bottles of Thunderbird wine and forging relationships with their seatmates that were clearly going to lead to lots of energetic sex on a succession of Mediterranean beaches. In the long, exciting weeks preceding the flight, I had sustained myself, I confess, with a series of bedroom-sealing fantasies that generally involved finding myself seated next to a panting young beauty being sent by her father against her wishes to the Lausanne Institute for Nymphomaniacal Disorders, who would turn to me somewhere over the mid-Atlantic and say, Forgive me, but would it be all right if I sat on your face for a while? In the event, my seatmate turned out to be an acneed string bean with Buddy Holly glasses and a lineup of ballpoint pens clipped into a protective plastic case in his shirt pocket. He had boils on his neck that looked like bullet wounds that had never quite healed, and he smelled oppressively of Vic's vapor rub. He spent most of the flight reading Holy Scripture, moving both sets of fingertips across each line of text as he read, and voicing the words just loud enough for me to hear them as a fervent whisper in my right ear. I feared the worst. Somewhere over the Atlantic, as I was sitting taking stock of my 200 cubic centimeters of personal space, as one does on a long plane flight, I spied a coin under the seat in front of me, and with protracted difficulty leaned forward and snagged it. When I sat up, I saw my seatmate was looking at me with that ominous glow. Have you found Jesus? he asked suddenly. Uh, no, it's a quarter, I answered, and quickly settled down and pretended for the next six hours to be asleep, ignoring his whispered entreaties to let Christ build a bunkhouse in my heart. In fact, I was secretly watching out the window for Europe. I still remember that first sight. The plane dropped out of the clouds, and there below me was this sudden magical tableau of small green fields and steepled villages spread across an undulating landscape. 
like a shaken-out quilt just settling back onto a bed. I'd flown a lot in America, and had never seen much of anything from an airplane window but endless golden fields on farms the size of Belgium, and meandering rivers and pencil lines of Black Highway. It always looked vast and mostly empty. But here the landscape had the ordered perfection of a model railway layout. It was all so green and minutely cultivated, so compact, so tidy, so fetching, so... so European. I was smitten. I still am. I had brought with me a yellow backpack so enormous that when I went through customs, I half expected to be asked, anything to declare, cigarettes, alcohol, dead horse, and spent the day teetering beneath it through the ancient streets of Luxembourg City in a kind of vivid daze, an unfamiliar mixture of excitement and exhaustion and intense optical stimulation. Everything seemed so vivid and acutely focused and new. I felt like someone stepping out of doors for the first time. It was all so different. The language, the money, the cars, the license plates on the cars, the bread, the food, the newspapers, the parks, the people. I had never seen a zebra crossing before, never seen a tram, never seen an unsliced loaf of bread. Never seen anyone wearing a beret who expected to be taken seriously. Never seen people go to a different shop for each item of dinner or provide their own shopping bags. Never seen feathered pheasants and unskinned rabbits hanging in a butcher's window or a pig's head smiling on a platter. Never seen a packet of Gitin or the Michelin Man. And the people, why, they were Luxembourgers. I don't know why this amazed me so, but it did. I kept thinking, that man over there, he's a Luxembourger, and so is that girl. They don't know anything about the New York Yankees. They don't know the theme tune to the Mickey Mouse Club. They're from another world. It was just wonderful. In the afternoon, I bumped into my acneed seatmate on the Pont Adolphe, high above the gorge that cuts through the city. He was trudging back towards the center beneath an outsized backpack of his own. I greeted him as a friend. After all, of the 300 million people in Europe, he was the only one I knew. But he had none of my fevered excitement. Have you got a room? he asked gloomily. No. Well, I can't find one anywhere. I've been looking all over. Every place is full. Really, I said, worry stealing over me like a shadow. This was potentially serious. I'd never been in a position where I had to arrange for my own bed for the night. I had assumed that I would present myself at a small hotel when it suited me, and that everything would be all right after that. Fucking city, fucking Luxembourg, my friend said with unexpected forthrightness, and trudged off. I presented myself at a series of semi-squalid hotels around the central station, but they were all full. I wandered farther afield, trying other hotels along the way, but without success, and in a not very long time, for Luxembourg City is as compact as it is charming, found myself on a highway out of town. Not sure how to deal with this unfolding crisis, I decided on an impulse to hitchhike into Belgium. It was a bigger country. Things might be better there. I stood for an hour and forty minutes beside the highway with my thumb out, watching with little stabs of despair as cars shot past and the sun tracked its way to the horizon. I was about to abandon this plan as well, and do what? I didn't know. 
when a battered Citroen 2CV pulled over. I lugged my rucksack over to find a young couple arguing in the front seat. For a moment I thought they weren't stopping for me at all, that the man was just pulling over to slap the woman around, as I knew Europeans were wont to do from watching Jean-Paul Belmondo movies on public television. But then the woman got out, fixed me with a fiery look, and allowed me to clamber into the back, where I sat with my knees around my ears amid stacks of shoe boxes. The driver was very friendly. He spoke good English and shouted at me over the lawnmower roar of the engine that he worked as a traveling shoe salesman and his wife as a clerk in a Luxembourg bank and that they lived just over the border in Arlon. He kept turning around to rearrange things on the back seat to give me more space and at the same time he was driving with one hand at 70 miles an hour in heavy traffic. I have seldom been more certain that I was about to die. The man drove as if we were in an arcade game. The highway was a three-lane affair, something else I had never seen before, with one lane going east, one lane going west, and a shared middle lane for overtaking from either direction. My new friend did not appear to grasp the system. He would zip into the middle lane and seem genuinely astonished to find a forty-ton truck bearing down on us like something out of a Roadrunner cartoon. He would veer out of the way at the last possible instant and then hang out the window shouting abuse at the passing driver before being shrieked back to the next crisis by me and his wife. I later learned that Luxembourg has the highest highway fatality rate in Europe. It took half an hour to reach Arlon, a dreary industrial town. The man insisted that I come to their apartment for dinner. Both the wife and I protested. I politely, she with undisguised loathing. But he dismissed our demurals, and before I knew it I was being bundled up a dark staircase and shown into the tiniest and barest of flats. They had just two rooms, a cupboard-sized kitchen and an everything-else room containing a table, two chairs, a bed, and a portable record player with just two albums, one by Gene Pitney and the other by an English colliery brass band. He asked me which I would like to hear. I told him to choose. He put on Jean Pitney, vanished into the kitchen, where his wife pelted him with whispers, and reappeared looking sheepish and bearing two tumblers and two large brown bottles of beer. Now this will be very nice, he promised, and poured me a glass of what turned out to be very warm lager. Mmm, I said, trying to sound appreciative. We sat drinking our beer and smiling at each other. I tried to think what the beer put me in mind of, and finally decided it was a very large urine sample, possibly from a circus animal. Good, yes? asked the Belgian. Mmm, I said again, but didn't lift it to my lips. I had never been away from home before. I was on a strange continent where they didn't speak my language. I had just traveled 4,000 miles in a chest freezer with wings. I had not slept for thirty hours, or washed for twenty-nine, and here I was in a tiny Spartan apartment in an unknown town in Belgium, about to eat dinner with two very strange people. Madame Strange appeared with three plates, each bearing two fried eggs and nothing else, which she placed in front of us with a certain ringing vehemence. She and I sat at the table, her husband perched on the edge of the bed. "'Beer and eggs,' I said." Interesting combination. Dinner lasted four seconds. Mmm, I said, wiping the yolk from my mouth and patting my stomach. 
That was really excellent. Thank you very much. Well, I must be going. Madam Strange fixed me with a look that went well beyond hate. But Monsieur Strange leaped to his feet and held me affectionately by the shoulders. No, no, you must listen to the other side of the album and have some more beer. He adjusted the record and we listened in silence and with small sips of beer. Afterward, he took me in his car to the center of town, to a small hotel that may once have been grand, but was now full of bare light bulbs and run by a man in an undershirt. The man led me on a long trek up flights of stairs and down hallways, before abandoning me at a large bare-floored room that contained within its shadowy fastness a chair with a thin towel on its back, a chip sink, an absurdly grand armoire, and an enormous oak bed that had the warp and whiff of a hundred and fifty years of urgent sex ground into it. I dropped my pack and tumbled onto the bed, still in my shoes, and realized that the light switch to the twenty-watt bulb hovering somewhere in the murk overhead was on the other side of the room, but I was too weary to get up and turn it off, and snuggled down for an eleven-hour sleep. I spent a few days tramping through the wooded hills of the Ardennes. The backpack took some getting used to. Each morning when I donned it, I would stagger around for a minute, in the manner of someone who's been hit on the head with a mallet, but it made me feel incredibly fit. It was like taking a trunk on holiday. I don't know that I have ever felt so content or alive as in those three or four days in the south of Belgium. I was twenty years old and at large in a perfect world. The weather was kind, and the countryside green and fetching, and dotted with small farms, where geese and chickens loitered along roadsides that seldom saw a passing car. Every hour or two I would wander into some drowsy village where two old men in berets would be sitting outside a cafe with glasses of bowls, and would silently watch me approach and pass, responding to my cheery bonjour with the tiniest of nods. And in the evenings, when I'd found a room in a small hotel and gone to the local cafe to read a book and drink beer, I would get those same tiny nods again from a dozen people, which I and my enthusiasm took as a sign of respect and acceptance. I believe I may even have failed to notice them edging away when, emboldened by seven or eight glasses of Jupiler pills or the memorably named Donkel beer, I would lean towards one of them and say in a quiet but friendly voice, Je m'appelle Guillaume, j'habite de Moines. And so the summer went. I wandered for four months across the continent, through Britain and Ireland, through Scandinavia.